Hey, all right, this is Tim Crisp, and you're listening to The Road to the Skeleton Coast with Brennan Kelly. Brennan, what's going on, Bubba? How are you? I am terrific. Uh, it's good to be here. This is uh, a big day for me because my first day with a little less of a toe than I have uh, usually am accustomed to having. Um, I had a little bit of a toe removed Um yeah, I guess for purely <laughs> cosmetic reasons, uh, but um, but they weren't my cosmetic reasons. It was the choice of my dermatologist. Nine so. and a half toes. Who needs ten, really? I, I feel much faster already. <laughs> well, it's good to have you back over after last week's episode, talking the greatest story ever told. We're recording these first few episodes a little in advance of posting, so. I can only assume that the actual public debut of episode one has completely broken the internet. Yeah, I know. I'm sure it's uh, wreaking havoc on servers everywhere. Um, we, we do appreciate all of you out there who have given us those five-star ratings, and we invite all of you to do that again, maybe log in with a different username and give us uh, another great review. Or if you forgot last week to give us a rating... Go ahead and do that. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Give us a follow on Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends about it. In the afterglow of episode one, I sent a good number of screen grabs from my GarageBand file that just said, Brennan Kelly episode one with that two hours and 15 minute timestamp. And everybody just said, oh my God, what? is going on here so if you're checking this out for the first time thanks for joining we are doing the same thing we did last week which is to talk about one lawrence arms record getting into all the details surrounding the build-up to the record writing recording and the aftermath at the end of the episode brendan will pick another lawrence arms record for us to talk about next week and aside from the simple fun excuse of having brendan to come over and spend a couple hours with his best friend, Tim. Why are we spending all this time talking about Lawrence Arms records? Um, I think, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure if we, I'm at liberty to say just yet, but uh, I guess, we, well, we um, there, there is a new Lawrence Arms record that is coming um, out sometime in the summer, and uh, this is an exciting retrospectus designed to get you either on board or back on the trolley um just in time for a beautiful new offering which will certainly melt your brains and the genitals of your choice maybe a toe or two um we were both a little disparaging towards ghost stories when you picked it at the end of last week's episode but I tell you what, I listened to it several times <laughs> in the past few days, and I had the best time. I guess for for you, just like at the beginning of this, what do you think of when you think about ghost stories? Um, it's it's a really weird record because it kind of marked the end of like sort of the very experimental in terms of I don't want to say the experimental era of our band. It marked the end of the era where we were experimenting, trying to figure out what our band was, um, yeah. you know. And so it, it was a, it was a record that was sort of, it definitely closed the chapter, and uh, there was a lot of like embryonic ideas in that that would go on to become very defining for the Lawrence Arms moving on, 
but at the time we really didn't know what the hell we were doing and it was done with a lot of haste and I guess there are people out there who would cite this as their favorite Lawrence Arms record and those people are to me people that have a real high um they trade in nostalgia more than they trade in anything else sure. you know yeah and uh and that's fine that's great uh, I don't see necessarily a uh, huge reason to play a lot of these songs live anymore. A lot of people don't know this record very well anymore. I mean, not a lot of people <laughs> knew it when it came out either. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's not like that's that's too big of a surprise. But uh, but yeah, it's this is just a really interesting record. I mean, it is growing pains personified as a record but at the same time in all that experimentation and all those growing pains it makes for some wacky shit definitely it's funny that you mentioned nostalgia because as i mentioned last week this was the first lawrence arms record that i heard i had a friend burn a cd for me and i remember being in study hall and you could do this thing where you could jimmy a pencil into your disc man and so that the lid could stay open and you could still play it. And I just sat with some Sharpies and just made a bunch of swirls <laughs> in study hall on my burned copy of Ghost Stories. Um, but listening to listening to it now and listening to it more recently, I'm reminded of the fact that for me, this was a really, really, uh, I think, important record to hear early on because it taught me to live with recording qualities being not what you're used to it took me a lot it took me a lot of work i think to like find just the things that i liked that were happening in here and then i really grew an affection for that bad kind of uh, not yeah it's a pretty it's pretty bad record. yeah it's pretty bad. <laughs> but it is interesting to look back on it now because there are a lot of things that i think happen on this record that you don't really ever do again so it's kind of cool to see you trying on a few different feels yeah i mean there's yeah that's sort of what i was trying to get at is like there's songs on here that are ridiculously unusual for us there's a lot of vibes i think the the one thing that was born out of this record more than anything else was the idea that I think is very definitive of what our band has become, which is like, you can really do whatever the fuck you want, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> yeah. Excuse me. And that's, that was really born here. You know, this, this is when like all caution got thrown to the wind. So Ghost Stories, the second Lawrence Arms LP was released on May 2nd, 2000 just six months after a guided tour of chicago which is pretty fucking incredible turnaround um how do we get from guided tour to ghost stories so quickly well the short version which i guess is the only version that i'm really could even bother to tell without it being hideously boring is that uh when we first started uh, I guess we kind of talked about this last week a little bit. Chris didn't really know uh, if he wanted to be in this band or not. Like, I had written a song. Oh, no, I didn't talk about this with you. I was talking no. about this with somebody else. We did talk about this on the Better Yet interview where you 
left the Broadways, you took Chris along with you, and maybe there was a little bit of apprehension from Chris's side about... Yeah, I think Chris was just like, I don't need this asshole (laughs) (laughs) in my life, you know? But unfortunately, we were best friends and roommates, and uh, so (laughs) for better or for worse, we... uh, we we started the Lawrence Arms and we did the first record and then when it came out, I think we really liked how it had turned out and I think one of the great it was it, it's like uh, maybe like some sort of like uh, what what some RPG or something where we just like unlocked the achievement of like Chris was like well actually I have a lot of songs you know I do yeah. I like this band uh-huh. <laughs> and I've been writing songs as well because the first record was all my songs uh pretty much and then once once we saw that entire finished product Chris was like you know I've got some songs too and then we started playing those and so at that point it was just a matter of you know some of the songs that I had already like been cook- cooking up you know because yeah just I just write all the time and there, there you go. We have we have a new record that that quickly. So you would say like songs like Turnstiles, All the Week, Ghost Stories. Chris was just kind of like, oh, by the way, and he opens this opens this box, and I told you I could give you a different flavor of Lacroix. You, I saw that face that you made about that drink that you. Oh just no, took. I the, what I enjoy about Lacroix is the hard bubbly uh-huh. nature of it. So I like to take too big of a gulp and have it kind of hurt. Oh, okay, over. it's like gotcha. it's like a wasabi yeah. thing. There you, you go. You know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> um, so basically, Chris is just like, oh, by the way, and opens this box, and we have four or five songs that are just already wit- written. I mean, that's sort of the way I remember it. Um, I don't feel like he was keeping those songs secret or anything. It wasn't like, uh-huh. it wasn't like, oh, I had no idea you were over here. To-, you know, it, it right. wasn't like one of those things where, like, you know, you go down to the the uh, superintendent's uh, quarters in your apartment building, and it turns out he's like cultivating bonsai trees. It's not right, like sure. <laughs> it's not like that. It's like I, I think I we knew he had songs and stuff like that, but. He's just like, I got some songs I could bring in. And we we're like, all right, that'd be great. And, you know, and then we then we made the record. And one of the interesting things about this record is it was made six months after Guided Tour. And I'm pretty sure it was recorded before we'd ever played a show. It was. So we, we yep. put out two records before we ever played one show. Yep. You um, you mentioned that to our friend Dan Ozzy. Subscribe to his newsletter, reply all at danozzy.substack.com. Uh, why? No shows. How? I, I think that it just was like the, the nature of getting into a band cautiously. Uh-huh. Um, you know, like we had been in the Broadways and uh you know touring a lot for not a lot of um anything yeah not a lot of anything i i i was gonna say accolades but that's even way too big for what we weren't (laughs) getting uh we there's not there's not anything going on and uh and so we um you know we got into this band and the idea was let's just be in a band because we like being in a band. We like playing together and we want it to be fun. And so we would just jam and we'd write these songs. And that's, I mean, you know, like I had a couple songs before a uh, guided tour started. And then I kind of put a few more together based on like the evolving idea of what our band could be. But this record really was the one that was like, 
we're just a band having fun. We're just friends playing in a basement. That's what this is about. Nothing else really is even on our minds at all. Where were you practicing at this time? We were practicing out the Whipple House, which is uh, now you'd call it um, I don't know, West uh, Lincoln Square, I guess. Okay. It was like Montrose yeah. and Whipple. There's a pizza place called Angelo's right there, sure. which now is like a fancy sit-down restaurant that serves like shit with truffles in it and stuff. But at the time- Yeah, that makes sense. At the time, area. it uh-huh. was still Angelo's and it was just like- couple tubs of ice cream and you could get like a slice of pizza and it was like cheese or pepperoni and that was it Uh but it's the same place same family that owns it and that was that was where we uh first rehearsed and tim mcgrath from rise against Uh and neil lived in that house oh cool together so i think there's some early iterations of rise against playing down there definitely um killing tree Uh which was no band that Tim and Neil were in together rehearsed down there. So yeah, we rehearsed in a weird little basement about half a mile from the house I live in now. For sure. <laughs> and then, and you went to college, right? Where, where does that all fit in during this time? Are you in school when you're making this record? Yeah. Um, I, I graduated in 2000. So this was like near the end of, uh, huh. Um, my school career or whatever, but uh, yeah, I was going to I was going to college full time when when this was going on. I was going to college full time for a guided tour. I mean, I the phone call I made to Neil when I was like, let's be in a band was from the student union uh-huh. at my college. So uh, <laughs> it's interesting that you don't mention that it's Northwestern, which is a fucking smart person college. Yeah, I'm a very smart person. Tim. <laughs> you know, I, I just like uh, I don't know if they need any plugs from me. They've been sending me uh, letters trying to get money out of me for the last 20 years, and I haven't haven't given them a goddamn red cent. So, well, they're suffering because of it, yes. as as all universities are in the United States of America in the year 2020. Um, is that why you've always been such a, we're going to get into some, some, uh, Chicago neighborhood talk for this episode. So you've always been pretty far North. Um, you grew up in that area. Did you always just kind of stay around there or were you there because you're kind of closer to the university? Uh, no. Well, yeah, I've always just been a Northside kid, you know, like I, I didn't feel the need to I guess I guess because like when when I was young, you know, um Slapstick, which was my first band, started doing um People know that. Yeah, well, some. I mean it's getting <laughs> weirder and weirder as we get older, but uh we started traveling like really early on, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and uh like when I was sixteen, I think it was the first time we went out of the country for a show. Right. You know, and and so like the the amount of traveling that I've always done just through the pure good fortune of having fallen in with the right people and getting to do this has always sort of left me not really needing to like move six miles down the road. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, like I've got plenty of like exploring going on all the time. 
I grew up on the north side. I like the north side. It's like, what do I? I'm going to move to Wicker Park with a bunch of people from Nebraska uh-huh. and, and shit. And like, you know, it's it's no, and it, that, it, it that just, totally it, makes sense. It just wasn't for me. It's like uh, uh-huh. to use like a kind of a tired and maybe a little bit now like a off color analogy. Like I'm a townie. Uh-huh. You know, in a big city. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. it's like, I don't feel the need to, like, live on campus. Definitely. Yeah, that that totally tracks. I also think it's interesting, too, that you bring up Slapstick and then obviously the Broadways. The one band that does crazy touring when you're, when you're really young and then you have this other band that's also pretty intense in its own way, it feels like the Lawrence Arms at the beginning was definitely just like, okay, Let's just cool it. Let's just do this thing just for the sake of doing this thing. Is that Absol- Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, it was definitely a response to that. And it's like, uh, I mean, I don't know what we're going to talk about when we talk about Guided Tour because this is all, like, so wrapped in the same, sure, yeah. in the same uh, blanket or whatever. But, but yeah, no, this, again, like, that, that's what this record specifically is all about. I mean, there might have been – there was probably more ambition – for making a product for other people going into guided tour than this one Mm -hmm. you know that one was just like i'm like oh i'm we're doing a band this is the way i know how to write songs you know and like here's like this like sort of vision i have or whatever and this one was like we're a bunch of buds we're having a good time uh yeah this is for us yeah yeah you know and i think that's it definitely shows in the evolution that it became more and more about this is for us once we figured out that that was the thing, yeah, um, and that's sort of where, you know, maybe like last week we talk about greatest story and like all the in jokes in that record and everything, and it's like it's pretty much only for us, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know? definitely. I mean, I can I can definitely see the track where this goes off into into apathy, into th- the fat wreck canon, then into tours with the starting line and, and yeah. yellow card. And then it's sort of the rediscovery of this is for us. Like, let's not, let's not lose sight of that. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, this is, while it is for you, it's also the second thing that you do for Mike Park. Um, you posted a very nice picture on Twitter, which I liked. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, <laughs> you're, uh, you're still not following me on Twitter. That is correct. Yeah. But so you acknowledge that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but I'm at Better Yet Pod. But um, so you again, you 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 already knew that that was my Twitter handle because you posted about uh, the podcast and added me. Yeah. Um, that's didn't follow me anyway. <laughs> anyway, you posted a ticket stub from a Skankin Pickle show. At the Metro, uh, March 24th, 1995, with openers Slapstick and Jerkwater, which is Matt Skiba's old band. Your tweet was, this day changed my life forever. Thank you, at Mike Park Music. I can never repay you. Was that the first time that you met Mike Park? Yes, it was. That's incredible. Yeah, it was uh, that day, and then after we played that show, we were standing across the street in front of uh, Wrigley'sville Dogs, and... Yeah. Uh, and we were looking at the Metro, and he was just like, you know, I'd like to, I'm doing a record label called Dill Records. I'd like to sign your band to Dill Records. And we were like, Whoa. I mean, it was just like uh, the most incredible 
moment. I mean, talk about something that you never think of is, I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, now I think things are different because there, there are so many people that get plucked from sort of obscurity these days, just based on like the ubiquity of the internet and like the, um, the powers that people have to, um, amplify different voices, be it uh-huh. their own or other people's, you know? So, or maybe I'm just being an old codger, but I, you know, I'd be like, back in my day, you, you didn't expect anything, you know, but, uh, I mean, this does like track, I think with kind of the, uh, the narrative, the like behind the music narrative or, you know, anything that's, uh, dramatized for this type of scenario. You meet the guy and he says, I'd like to put your record out. And then, yeah, but I mean, but what I, I guess my point is that like, this is the last thing I expected him to say. Yeah, <laughs> you know, sure, sure. it wasn't like it's not like you're thinking, oh, may- like maybe he'll put. Uh, yes, if we're good enough. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. It, it was more like like he might as well have said like, I'm actually a porpoise. <laughs> you know, like it was like what? You what? You're what now? No, put. I would like to put out your records. Well, he puts out slapstick records. He puts out Broadway's records, and then he puts out a guided tour of Chicago. Yes. I guess. How does the conversation go when six months after the uh, uh, guided tour comes out, you still haven't played a show, and you're saying, "Hey, Mike, uh, could we do another one of these long players?" <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because in your version. The records would have come out about a year apart. Uh huh. <laughs> you know, yeah, like we yeah. were. I I think what happened was we came to Mike with the record, and I mean it's been a long time, so I might have this a little bit wrong, but we came to Mike with the guided tour Chicago record. He put it out. He was like, you know, you guys working on other stuff, and we're like, oh yeah, no, actually we're a band now. You uh-huh. know, like we have a record, like yeah. ready to put out, like, a, and and I think. I mean, at the time, Mike was making, uh, you know, he's putting out a lot of records. He was expanding his portfolio. I think the money was coming in because it was the time when people bought stuff still. Mm-hmm. And and so I don't think it was too much of a question that, like, you know, he would just keep paying it forward a little bit. And, I mean, that was, like, right around the time that the trio was, you know, getting course, onto yeah. um, Asian Man. And the trio was getting onto Asian Man in no small part because Dan had joined the band. Mm-hmm. Dan was from Slapstick and like, you know, so the whole thing, like the, the Slapstick family tree for lack of a, any other term, yeah, yeah no yeah. other term exists, uh, <laughs> was, uh, was just like sort of, I think a big enough deal in Mike Park's universe at that time that it was just like, yeah, it's a no brainer, right, whatever, whatever right. you want to do, you can do. Uh huh. Well, that's, that's pretty incredible. Mike Park is an incredible, incredible man. And, yeah. uh, like I, you know, he he changed my life and sustained my life being changed uh, above and beyond the call of duty several several times for sure. Um, I I guess like when you're when you're in this spot and then to see the success that some of your other friends are having, namely Dan with Alkaline Trio, what how do you take? all of that in. I mean, I think that it's easy for someone like me to look back and and think about like, oh, God damn, it came out and just like changed everything. I'm sure it didn't feel quite like that when you were down on the ground with them. But the success of Alkaline Trio just off of God damn it is it's pretty significant. I, Absolutely. Yeah. How are you how are you kind of taking that in? Um, 
Yeah, it was a little bit like, well, I mean, you know, those, those guys, Matt and Van, were like some of my best friends. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, on one hand, it's like, I, I think, I'm trying to like look back at this as like honestly as possible. I definitely was like, super stoked for them and didn't like begrudge them any of their success you know it's an awesome record and i thought so at the time i remember when i first heard their first demo i was down in glenn and heather's apartment which was below matt's apartment which was where i was staying when i left my my place Uh uh-huh and there was a i'd just gotten back from tour or something and heather had this demo she played it. And I was like, "Oh, this is this is the band that Chicago's always needed. This is going to be the best band in Chicago." Mm-hmm. And that was, I mean, before they'd probably ever played a show, right? The, what the, that's got week week and yeah, ninety seven. Uh huh. Uh huh. And I, uh, so I was always like very vocally into the Alkaline Trio, but I mean, I think that there was also part of me that was like, "Oh fuck, man, these guys are leaving me behind." You know, like it. Sure. It wasn't so much like a. I mean, it, it would be disingenuous to say there's no like jealousy component to it, but it was more like a self-flagellation of like of like I don't believe I can't keep up. Mm-hmm. You know, like I used to I used to be able to keep up with all these dudes, and now it's like they're yeah. off to the races, and it's a complex human reaction to yeah. when your friends get successful. Um, yeah, and like again, I don't. It would be disingenuous to say there was like not a, like a jealousy component, but I don't think that that was the main thing. The main thing was like definitely me feeling a personal failure at the <laughs> at their success. Uh-huh. I guess, I guess if you know, I'm, if I'm really trying to psychoanalyze what was going on then, I mean, at the time. I think I was just like, no, Trio's awesome. No, I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We got another mic to talk about this week. I am so excited to talk about Mike Giampa produced (laughs) this record, as did... as he did for a guided tour of Chicago. If you could use one word to describe Mike Giampa, what would that word be? Uh, well, <laughs> dead. It <laughs> <laughs> comes to mind immediately. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> Giampa was a weird dude, man. Um, he definitely was a real iconoclastic firebrand weirdo um he uh he recorded in the basement of a bank in the suburbs uh-huh. um he yeah i saw there's an 847 number which for our non-illinois uh folks that's the sub- suburbs of chicago yeah do you know do you remember where it was I want to say it was in like Palatine. Okay. Palatine, Hoffman Estates. Yeah. Mount Prospect. Somewhere in there. Union uh, Pacific Northwest train line, baby. Oh, yeah. Um, but um, he uh, he was a weird dude, man. He like he had his own thing going on. But as I think back about it, I never really heard about him or playing any shows or anything like that. Um, he was 
just so straight like he would talk like this and he'd be like yeah dudes you know i've got this new thing going on my name is pastor curfew and i'm dressing full of tuxedo tails you know and like i'm like what the fuck and man i can't i can't remember if this is if this is something that happened during guided tour or um ghost stories but the story if he's coming up now it the the, the most salient uh <laughs> Mike Guillaume-Patel is that uh, we're playing and we're recording all at once in the live room because, um, I mean, that's just how we did. Uh-huh. And and, uh, and I feel like I like I remember just having my head down and I'm like, oh, we're killing it right now. And then he just hits the talk back. He's like, all right, dudes, I need you to come in here. <laughs> we're like, oh, I guess we must have fucked something up. And we go in. He's like... Check out this song I've been working on. And he just pulls out an acoustic guitar and starts playing a song. Like while we're in the middle of trying to record. <laughs> so do you remember where you found this guy? Uh, uh, Tim and Neil had found him to record Baxter. Uh-huh. I don't know where he had been before that. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's, where, that's where it came from. At the end of Old Mexico Way, someone says, call an ambulance. Is that him? Or is that you? That's me. Yeah. He goes, yeah, I'll bring your guns. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's Giampa. Um Also, there's an assistant engineer credit to Jim Godsey, who's got a long list of credits for records by people I've never heard of. And then uh, Commons, One Day It'll All Make Sense, which isn't too much of a leap because he's from Chicago, (laughs) but also uh, the Black Star record, the masterpiece of Talib Kweli (laughs) and Most Def. Like, this dude's got a recording credit on it. Um... I, I love going down rabbit holes like this so everybody out there can be prepared for me to anytime I can get into somebody's credentials, I will. Um, do you do you know who this guy was or was he just like there because he have, was working with Mike G? I don't have any idea who that is. I mean, I know that um, our buddy Andy Gallus was helping out a little bit during that and he has crazy credentials like he was R. Kelly's in-house engineer mm. forever and stuff like that mm-hmm. and so like as you were reading like you know common and black star i'm like oh maybe it's andy gallus maybe it got like transposed weirdly or something interesting i don't know who that dude is yeah um, maybe he was the mastering guy i don't know mastering guy was harry Brontman, um who mm. mostly has like blues musicians as credits and so. i believe that was a giampa uh-huh selection um but yeah i don't know i don't that's all right gosh i don't yeah. remember i don't remember there being an engineer assistant, but that could just be because, I mean, during the recording of this record, I was at the end of senior year of college. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like while we were mixing this, I remember I was under a table reading the novel or novella Death by Tolstoy and write, writing a paper on it like while we were mixing because that's the way that Wait, is it death or death of Ivan Ilyich mm, maybe it's death of Ivan Ilyich yeah just screams for three days yeah, yeah yeah it's just like it's just like about him looking down and watching his body decay and stuff yeah, like that yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and it, like it's I, I believe it opens and closes in a bed i've only read mm-hmm. it the one time and it was while he doesn't was leave the, the bed he just dies while it was at yeah. the studio mixing ghost stories so so wonderful <laughs> but yeah i know so like i mean that was that was the way that like i personally existed in, in in that time was like i was doing so much homework and then just carrying it with me everywhere and mm-hmm. then you know go in and play the bass and then come back out read a bunch of pages write a paper yeah you know something like that wild like just i didn't i used to be lazy i used to achieve <laughs> <laughs> no more um well you you don't have as many toes as you did then that's true um, I, i'm definitely sure to tell main engineer credit goes to tennessee neil hennessy yeah i think he did a lot of the production and i also think that, that we were like having a laugh uh-huh. you know like yeah in the sure credit. i mean like we we again this was not supposed to be anything serious so we took the idea of like credits on an album is like credits on an album who gives a shit you know like that's why like we have a credit somewhere I, it might be on greatest story even where it says like ben peer took one of these pictures he really gets his dick in knots if you don't mention him by name <laughs> we've, we've been using ben's photos for forever and he's like you gotta credit me when you use my pictures <laughs> Um, was this the record that Mike G added triggers to the drums? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> every, every drum, every cymbal is triggered. Um, it's essentially a drum machine played by Neil. Yeah. Um, it's very odd. So it's like the pads and... N- no, no, it was like he would... Now I'm, again, this is like where I get into trouble because I don't know too much about this shit, but like he would just take... Like the track that had the snare drum on it, uh-huh. and every time there was a signal, he would replace it with a signal of a of a snare oh. drum. Oh, you know, same thing with the crash cymbal, and he uh-huh. had he had this like bank of, uh, you know, drum sounds, and and so he constructed out of the organic track, uh-huh. um, what exists now, which is technically I guess the same thing, but the, it's all samples. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's very odd. Um, it's such a weird choice to make for just a crappy punk record. Yeah, it. it but like Giampa was out of his mind. Neil uh-huh. was already really into like the idea of like doing wild stuff in the studio. I mean, he's gone on to be like, you know, an engineer and producer in his own right. Uh-huh. And, and so I think the excitement of being able to do it was really cool. And it did sound. It was like, well, dudes, what sounds better, this snare? Or this snare. Right. And, you know, it's like the the sampled one sounds better because Giampa is the one who recorded the first one. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know. It makes sense when when you put it into those terms, yeah. Yeah, and and so, like. um, That's so funny. So, yeah, I think it was, like, a big, brash, dumb decision that seemed like a really smart decision on a micro scale yeah you sure. know like uh to use a highly wildly inappropriate analogy mm-hmm. it's like the guy that just like sweeps up at the concentration camp <laughs> you know he thinks he's just mm-hmm. a janitor right you know what i mean he's right uh, like and, and, and <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I like that you can't even you can't even carry it through. You just you just <laughs> say it. And you just let it, you let all of us make the conclusion out of it. That's that's nice. Yeah, well, you know. Um, I was kind of surprised by this realization, but this record marks the first appearance of the Hourglass with ring, with Wings logo. Yes. Um, we had the Suicide King logo, and and this one would become key pieces of iconography, and both of them were done by. Chris Bach. What can you tell us about Chris Bach? Well, okay. Um, he did not do the king. Oh, okay. The king was taken straight off a deck of playing cards. Okay. Um, and that's... Because I think you got an art credit on uh, Guided Tour that's also to Chris Bach. So did he design the logo? He designed He designed the, the logo uh-huh. and the CD. Yeah. Oh, no. That's the Ghost Stories CD with the guy with all the numbers. Uh-huh. That's Ghost Stories, right? Think yeah, so. I don't. I can't think of what the guided tour. I never owned Ghost CD, Story on CD, CD. Looked like. Oh, I see. Yeah. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, on vinyl. I bought this. Bought uh, cocktails and dreams recently too, just oh. for this podcast. I don't know if you can get me the other ones. I can probably. Was, I can probably yeah. get you the other ones. Um, Sick. I was just gonna but, expense it. But yeah, no, I think it was gonna good. come out of your cut. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's. I, 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 <laughs> you know, that's how things tend to work in my life. Uh, but. Chris Bach was my, um, he's the only person that I am still in touch with from, from college. And, um, he also, uh, was like my best only friend at college. Uh-huh. Although, I mean, I was friendly with other people. I'm sure you were, you know, but uh-huh. like, but he was, he was like the only dude that I hung out with Yeah, and he wrote graffiti and his sketchbook was something that I really like, uh, I would always look through it because I used to like pretend that I wrote graffiti like when I was like, you know, in middle school and mm-hmm. high school and stuff like that. And so when I met him, at least I knew like I knew some of the like the people that wrote graffiti. I could talk about it enough that sure you ever get in he, trouble for it. He was like, oh, you're not a moron. Uh, you know, uh-huh. I'll talk to you about this. But uh, I know I well, I, one time I tagged my neighbor's house <laughs> and they knew it was me. Um, so that was bad, but then I realized you don't tag people's houses, but, right. uh, or your neighbors. Uh, uh-huh. yeah. Particularly not your neighbors, but, uh, but so, so I was looking through his sketchbook one day and he had that little hourglass in there who we call flappy now. Oh, beautiful. That's his name is flappy. Fantastic. And, um, so I saw flappy and I was like, Hey, I'm about to start this band. Can I, uh, would you mind if I used this guy? Mm-hmm. And he was like, no, go ahead. And it's funny. Now he's a, um, should give him a shout out. He does Bach custom joinery. If you ever need a quality artisanal, uh, artisanal, isn't that like bread and stuff, right? Yeah. Artisan uh, crafted um, furniture. I guess the thing about joinery is it, it yeah. doesn't use like screws and shit. It's uh-huh. just like fits together like a puzzle. I don't really know, but he he does it all, and he's got a shop on the west side, and his shit's dope. I mean, he's the guy that did Flappy for fuck's sakes. It's that's funny that you mentioned that too, because on the back of this record, you got Flappy, and it's in it's around this kind of ornate like uh, sort of carpentry design with you know like like wood carved flowers and things like that. Um, I'll show it to you. Well, it's, it, it's great. Yeah, that's a reissue though. That's not what the original 
back of the record look like. Well, I'm sorry. I'm just I, I'm just saying that that I thought I'd give Mike some money, Mike Park. You, you, no, no, I, I I I admire your commitment to the bit to buy the uh, reissue records. That's that's good. That one I've had. But uh, but the on the cover of Ghost Stories, you know, it's like all the photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are different photographs here, but yeah. um, on the original one, it's like you know, I'm on there with Chris and. It's always two people in all the pictures, uh-huh. right? And um, there's one of me and Skiba kissing. That's uh, one that people tend to pull out as, uh, uh-huh. you know, the one they remember. But there's me and Chris Bach on there as well. And then we could never get all three of us together for the photographs for whatever reason. So in one of them, I believe it's. Chris and I, and then we have Chris Bach standing backwards. So he, so it looks like it's all three of like me, Chris, and Neil, but we never got all three of us in there. Uh-huh. But that's, that's Chris Bach. He was, oh, that's awesome. He was an integral part of the uh, development of the brand, as it were. Well, let's get into it. Ghost Stories opens with 16 hours, similar to Guided Tours' Evening of Extraordinary Circumstances, a track about all the ruin you were about to uh, (laughs) let upon yourself that day. Yeah, um, my memory is probably fraught with holes and, you know, little silica gel packets and stuff like that, but I seem to recall that... uh, we just didn't have an opening song for this record. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote this at the end so we'd have a first song for the record. Yeah. Um, just like really very much like we need something fast, punchy, and short sure. to start the record off. Yeah. And we don't have that. And so I just kind of cranked this song out. And that's that weirdly enough for the entire time that we were like touring on this record and sort of owning it as part of our legacy as opposed to now where it's just like so far in the past that I don't even think about it. Yeah. Um, I remember, I thought that this was like a real throwaway song on the record. And now as I go back and listen to the record, it's one of my favorites yeah, on, the whole, mine too. on the whole thing. Absolutely. And <laughs> we just, I mean, we could not stop laughing at the idea of doing that big like the one two three four five six seven eight uh-huh like at the end of the song and then it going into just nothing yeah like we we were like it was kind of like when we talked about um last time with uh greatest story where when we put the intro next to ron's hearing flesh and we heard that transition we were like that's so fucking weird <laughs> we have to do it yeah uh, you know and it was it was the exact same thing with this song like <clears throat> we could barely <clears throat> If you listen to the recording, you can kind of hear us trying not to laugh while we're doing the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, that's so funny. Because it's it was it was just so funny. Like this is sort of a non sequitur, but not really actually. Andy Gallus, who I was telling you, was the um the the dude that was R. Kelly's in house uh-huh. um engineer for a long time. He was talking about when they did Trapped in the Closet. He re- engineered that, uh-huh. and all like Rob's buddies were there. And he'd go in and he'd, you know, he'd sing a line. And if everybody wasn't cracking up, he would come back out and he would rewrite it until it was like funny enough that everybody. And so oh it's my like, God, yeah, it's, it, you know, I, I find like, I think this is an example, a, a very small and like much shittier than 
traps in the closet, but much less <laughs> criminal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it really managed to not uh, yeah, commit. It uh, didn't commit heinous, several heinous crimes. Yeah. crimes. Um, but, but it's like so many times, like the artist is in on what you think you find funny. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's uh-huh. like when I heard that about R. Kelly, I was like, oh, he knows it's funny? Yeah. That's surprising. But then it's like, why is it surprising? That guy has engineered all of this stuff to like have one of the biggest careers. You, you think he doesn't know what's funny? Oh, yeah. You know, and it's like, oh, duh. But with this, and obviously we didn't engineer anything to have one of the biggest anythings. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm sure people heard that and were like, this is so dumb. And it was we were like, oh, no, it's dumb. <laughs> it's so funny with like, you know, you mentioned that story last week about showing up to the to the matinee and, and beer cans falling out of the car when you got there. And yeah. there's there's a story in, in one of the replacements books about this guy seeing the the van pull up and they open it and it's just beer cans just fall out and he's like, I thought I witnessed like an incredible moment and it turns out that they did that every single time because they knew they yeah. knew that it would make such a, such a long lasting impression on the people who saw it that yeah. like, of course they showed up with shit like that <laughs> yeah, um, totally. you talked last week about Bay Area bands like 15 and Crimshire telling stories in short fast songs uh, and, and you lay down quite a bit here in in a minute and seven seconds is that is that that same energy that's going into this very much i mean and like that's the whole thing like 15 and crimshine particularly are two bands that uh are uh fronted by the same guy and who has like a per- pervasive uh very serious like substance abuse problem from at least according to the lyrics, you know, mm-hmm. like he's like a speed freak and a, and a junkie, right? Yeah. You know, so like, not beer cans falling out of his van or whatever, you know. Sure, it's like, sure. And so, there's a lot of like self-flagellation in those songs, and uh, and I mean, you know, I'm, it's there too. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm drinking beer, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but it's like the the influence is undeniably like that same thing. Like, take a good look at yourself, man. And but this was this one is a little bit more. Um, 16 hours as opposed to like the sort of seriousness of like what comes in like the 15 and from mm-hmm. Shrine uh, songs Th- this song was supposed to be like yeah I'm fucking up yeah. you know what I'm yeah. saying uh-huh. I'm fucking uh-huh. up <laughs> yep totally but like but it's it's not supposed to be self pitying. Yeah, totally. It's, totally. Supposed it's to be the, like it's, a, there's a there's a a good amount of uh, yeah. This is something to. It's, I mean, it's not something to brag about, but we're gonna celebrate it a little bit. Let's just like it's just like this. This is my thing, yeah, man. Sure. You know, like you could, you could get on board or get the fuck out. That's mm-hmm. that's that's the way. That's sort of the way that it was, and and like the what. Even like the music in it is designed to be kind of funny, like the, you know, like that. That's that shit's like, it's supposed to be like this like dancey, funny dichotomy with the like the sort of like more, sort of pseudo depressed lyrics, but this is a fun song. I mean, the the song like structurally, formative, formally, is um, sort of like both sides of getting super wasted yeah <laughs> you know it's like it's actually pretty fun but you know if you think about it it's pretty dark <laughs> um i i love the like one two three four five six seven eight then quick ending and then chicago's burning is quick beginning 
and then drops out with that open chord yeah. and just the bass. Yeah. I really love just like that that fun transition that you get into. Um, obviously, lyrically, like we're referencing the Chicago Fire of yeah, yeah, um, eighteen seventy one. This is like a prototype of Metropole, is what it is. It's yeah. like it's like loneliness in your city, um, you know, coping with it however you can. The the one thing in in this one is uh, I just had a class and it was a, a it was an advanced cinematography class where mm. the professor was talking about how like when you shoot in Chicago you always need to use blue gels because the sodium vapor lights are unique to Chicago and huh. and they're the orange lights that's why when you fly into Chicago it's like the orange grid as opposed to you fly into most other cities and it's like more of like a blue or like yellow grid yeah so the orange is according to this professor and my faulty memory fairly unique to chicago the sodium vapor orange huh. right and uh i attempted to subvert his entire premise by shooting everything with no gels outside because i was like man if it's orange out here that's dope and that's mm-hmm. like i want to capture that especially if it's unique to uh mixed results but uh-huh in this song i say carbon vapor lights burn as a grid and it is just a i fucking picked the wrong elements and it, it still fucking pisses me off to this day like i just like misremembered it or well it, it maybe what you can say is that you knew it was sodium but since it's it's burning it's releasing carbon. <laughs> yeah, that's it's perfect. Goddamn right. Yeah, yeah you were thinking ahead <laughs> yeah, of even yourself. I, that's right. I'm I've, I've evolutionarily and um, uh, chemically one step ahead. <laughs> what 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 sodium vapor? Do you know where that comes from? Is it's the Morton Salt factory, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly correct. Yes, um, sodium vapor comes from everybody vaping outside the Morton Salt factory, <laughs> juuling. I, what I like about about this one is there's, I think a lot of songs on this record have that post-Broadway's energy of politically focused lyrics and insights, but this one seems to be much more of an internal uh, view that that we're getting too, where it's it's we're we're seeing a lot more of you kind of taking this in and internalizing it with all of the other things that are going on in your head of just being just generally like in shit condition right yeah and i think that you know we'll probably get into this a lot more when it comes to a guided tour but that was sort of like a mission statement of this band to a certain extent was to not be too overtly political with a couple of exceptions on guided tour mm-hmm. um but like by this point it was like anything that you can say by talking about politics and trying to glean a human element out of it. It's much cooler to talk about a human element and glean yeah, politics totally. out of it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like, Cause I so. think like with, you know, Broadway is it's, it's like you're young punks and you're, you're pissed off about this. And now it's like, you're an individual who's pissed off about a lot of things, including this. Right. And like, including, you know, myself. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, exactly. So, um, yeah. 
Turnstiles, I mean, it has obviously become such a classic. Yeah. Um, I, I fucking, this is one of, one of the true gems, I think, of, uh, of this record. Uh, this is one of my favorite Lawrence Armstrongs, period. Yeah. Um, we re-recorded it for Cocktails and Dreams, and, um, that was more or less because I was like, that's like our best song. We should give it a good treatment, you know? And, uh, yeah, I love this one. The end is really strong to me. Mm -hmm. Um, you kind of need the beginning for the end to come. Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, to me, the song is all about, it's all about the last 20 seconds or whatever. And it's like, it's a, it's a great, if you have the patience and the balls to write a song where it just kind of like brings you along slowly and casually until the last 20 seconds and it explodes, mm-hmm. usually it pays off pretty well. But it's something you have to be pretty brave to do. And Chris did it here. Um, in the re-recording for Cocktails and Dreams, Chris notes that he was very hungover when he did these vocals. Yes. Um, do you remember the night that led to the hangover? No, but I, I do remember, I do remember him doing these vocals and like his face just like, oh, dude, like, you know, I, yeah. I remember, I remember like the, the look of physical torment. Um, but I mean, most of this stuff was recorded hungover <laughs> or sure, drunk, you know, sure. but I mean, it 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 really really shows on this. Do you just kind of just shrug and say it's all right? Um, well, th- th- there was a lot of like. For one thing, I actually love the performance on this. Like, I fucking I, love it no, too. No, We're I, gonna get to how much I love it. No, no, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to say anything about that. But I, I, I tend to be really forgiving about like getting the uh, emotional side out versus the technical frequency side um yeah you know like that's what i really want from a performance um i think he nailed it he nailed the desperation in in this take but more to the point and this maybe has informed my opinion on that kind of thing um more than i'm giving it credit for maybe this is like who's walking who kind of situation where um we just didn't have a lot of time yeah sure so it's like it's like Okay, you know what? That sounds good. You know what? I love the pathos in the delivery, so uh, we got to move on. Yeah. And so, like, that's it. So, like, there was, there's not. It wasn't like you, we had. You don't. You don't have an entire day to do vocals. You don't. Right. Exactly. You can't do too many takes because mm-hmm. yeah. studio time. It's it's fucking expensive. It's expensive, and it was weird. And you know, half the time you gotta stop and listen to another song by Mike Yampa. <laughs> <laughs> so kids don't drink the night before you record vocals but i i the strain in the early uh like lines you know he he can't hit burn like at all yeah but the and, and there's another part too here that i noted where it's it's the first time that you um give a, a backing vocal is on the revolving like turnstiles and you can hear you on the backup because Chris gets flat in like what he says turnstiles. Oh yeah, and y- you hear you kind of just like 
dip back a little bit <laughs> because it's like you don't want to go over him because it's not gonna <laughs> it's not gonna sync up but the end he's got that fucking vocal yeah so strong it's it's absolutely like the payoff yeah and it's like it's you know it's a tortured part it should sound a little tortured and it you know chris doesn't write songs in d anymore really yeah i think for this <laughs> reason but man i'm glad he wrote this one in d yeah i i keep thinking that the uh like this is the version that i take i love the cocktails version yeah. and it's it's a good th- i think it's the right thing that you re-recorded it sure sure but like this is the one i think yeah for sure I would hate to watch Chris listen to this. <laughs> Asa Phelps is dead. Would you mind telling our listeners who Asa Phelps is? Asa Phelps was the um, second to, or the third to last person in the Tongteen in um, the uh, Flying Hellfish episode, Fighting Hellfish, both actually, but anyway, um, of, of The Simpsons, in which uh, Montgomery Burns and Abraham Simpson are in a long-standing agreement with the people of their World War II platoon. Um, Tongteen, for those of you who don't know, is... Uh, <laughs> it was Tongteen. Uh, of where um, you everybody enters a pact, and the last person to live um, ends up with the um, the treasure. of That's... I guess I should have started with that. It starts with a treasure. Stolen art. Yeah. Well, it's, it's stolen art in this case, but you can do taunting about anything. You mm-hmm. know? It could be about like your attractive cousin, uh, you know, um, Dude, am I doing taunting with my other cousins who find her attractive? Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know why you have to be so heteronormative about it, but uh, <laughs> sorry. Them. Uh, I'm getting fucking gender politics advice from a 90 year old. <laughs> Season 7, episode 22, Raging Abe Simpson and his grumbling grandson in The Curse of the Flying Hellfish. The follow-up to what might be my favorite episode of The Simpsons, 22 short films about Springfield. Those are both great episodes. Um, This was a great season. Um, And uh, it's really hard for me not to just go down like a Simpsons rabbit hole, but... uh, we were huge fans of The Simpsons, and um, I mean, I still am a huge fan of early Simpsons. I listen, yeah. I still listen to a, a classic Simpsons podcast. I still watch the episodes with my kids. Which one? Talking Simpsons. But oh, okay. I also listen. I, to, I need to check that out. I yeah. also listen to the Four Finger Discount as well, mm-hmm. which is the Australian version. Oh um, wow! Yeah. Um, so I got some cleaning to do. So that's <laughs> exactly what I'm gonna yeah. do the moment that you leave. Yeah, it's it's really it's they're they're really fun. I mean, like, uh, and just like the you know the episodes are so like just part of our cultural fabric. I mean, we would sit around. Chris and I and Neil and our buddies Marcus and uh, Ryan and Sean Nader and we would sit around and we would just watch. There'd be six episodes of The Simpsons on in a row, I believe, um, in syndication. Yeah, and then we'd record them all, and then we'd take our tapes and we'd watch those over and over. And then we'd yeah. do like trivia nights, just the just like we divide into teams and we'd mm-hmm. ask each other the questions and pre-internet so nobody was like looking anything up it was all just like relying on memory and we 
were very, very into the Simpsons and Ace Phelps' dad um, was at this time a pretty obscure reference. And it's funny because it, I fuck it up because it's Ace Phelps has died uh-huh. is what yeah. they say in the in the show. That that's the that's the the note, right? Ace Phelps has died, but Ace Phelps is dead. I thought just had a little more of a clunk to it. Yeah, once again, you're you're making it and you're you're taking what you need to just like carbon, just like sodium. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um yeah, I I have um my good friend Terry's got just like I've had his box sets for the past few moves just keep trying to give his dvds back to him and he's like so commentary is like what puts me to sleep um i think it's it's it can't be overstated how subversive this show was and the extent to which the like meta irony that just marks the 1990s is so encapsulated in the simpsons also defined by the Simpsons. I yeah. mean, like the, so many of us now that grew up in that era, we speak like lexiconographically through Simpsons. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I, you know, if you hear somebody say something like a little bit from column A, a little from column B, or like everything's yeah. coming up Millhouse. I mean, these are like cultural touchstones that, first of all, don't say everyone, everything's coming up Millhouse. It's just so played, but, (laughs) but I think that what it, I think that where it shows and it, where it shows specifically in this song is the fact that the Simpsons is hitting on all forms of high and low. And while you have, you know, I, I can't think of how many movies that I've seen that are a result of, I know that the Simpsons references this, so I want to watch, uh, oh, yeah. I want to watch Citizen Kane mm-hmm. for that reason alone. But the fact that you have a song that references the Simpsons and then at the end of it, you have Chris reading the end of the stranger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, and th- those were two things that were really big with us at the time yeah, as well. For you know, sure. like, stranger was really big. And, this song is interesting because it was written. First of all, it was written. I, I wrote the baseline first, and then we jammed it, and then I wrote the words after, which is one of the only times I've ever done that. Mm-hmm. And um, it was right before we went to the studio. It was the last song we wrote before we went to the studio, and I mean, like maybe by even like hours. It was not. It was very last minute. And then we've never played it live. Yeah, why? Well, for a long time, I think we all thought of this song as just ridiculously half-baked. And when I came back and listened to this record again recently, I heard this and I was like, oh, this is actually one of my favorite songs on this record. That's strange. It's a great song. Yeah. uh, but it's just, I I think it's aged a lot better than I thought. I think we kind of thought the baseline, like maybe... In hindsight, it had a little smidge too much funk. It is. It is pretty funky. Yeah, <laughs> Which is, yeah, yeah. See, there you go. That's why. Uh huh. <laughs> like it sounds. It sounds like you could like slap that part. Yeah, if you wanted I, to. No, you don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> did you Did you learn to play bass? Did you have somebody teach you to play bass? Because bass was my first instrument, and I I had to. It took me six months of saying I don't want to learn Red Hot Chili Peppers songs. 
bass yeah. teacher man yeah well i mean I, I i brought in just my own stuff and i would bring in like no yeah. no songs and stuff like for that sure. so i could some uh i could uh detour around the red hot chili peppers with no means no mm-hmm. so. <laughs> um i really love the intro this is one of those things that talking earlier about things that you don't really do again like the the hits yeah and kind of the i love that like can't, 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 can't. some of the hits are like off a little bit chris has one where he just like it seems like he misses a couple strings yeah i mean that stuff was all like Actually, for this, I that was all fairly intentional, but it was supposed to sound a little jagged mm-hmm. and jittery before it kicked into the the main part, which is so smooth, you yeah. know, like just like so sort of the main like current of the song. It was supposed to be like really dichotomous or whatever mm-hmm. was the idea. So it, when I when I hear it, what I hear that stands out is is the fact that you have bass on one side guitar on the other side they're completely panned and there's no underneath like rhythm guitar which is just sort of a like recording 101 was that a was <laughs> that yeah for sure yeah that's, that's definitely like i you know this, this is news to me man uh-huh. <laughs> but it's great yeah no i mean you know he he had a vision yeah. I, I don't know what it was but he had one <laughs> um cool that 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 answered it is it is it kiafa is you not knowing better is it you not having time it's just straight up like Pure you know, why would you need that <laughs> um what kind of what kind of bass are you playing at this time like do you remember the setup i don't really get into like gear talk but your tone on this uh on this record is like pretty muddy and I'm wondering if it's if it's a reflection of how your bass sounds live, if it's Giampa, if it's both. Uh, on this one, I mean, the bass, I'm, I'm playing, I think, the same bass that I play now. Um, but I was playing through Guitar Head because that was all I had. Uh-huh. And uh, so it was pretty muddy because it was just, like, fuzzed out because the signal was too low mm-hmm. for the the circuitry to handle or whatever. Um, and... But then when you're playing your your little flea lines, it, it pops really good because you got some good mids on. Yeah, there. exactly. Cause it, yeah, because it's a because the guitar amp. But yeah, I fooled myself for a long time into thinking that that was like my thing. So I'd play through a guitar amp, and, yeah, and you know that would be my sound. And then I tried playing through like an ampeg, and I was like, oh, this sound is much better. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's it's definitely cleaned up uh, by the time Matt Allison starts recording. You. Know? Oh yeah. Um. So. We mentioned the stranger. Whose idea is it to insert that voiceover? Um, that I I tended to do a lot of that stuff, but I can't say with any authority that I mm-hmm. that it was my idea to do it. But just the fact that Chris is reading it leads me to think that it was me who suggested it. Because I, I don't. Chris would never be like, I think we should read the stranger at the end of this, and I'm going to read it. Uh huh. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's my thought. There. When when did you read The Stranger? Had you just read it? Had you read it earlier? Um, we read it in middle school, and then we read it again in high school. You read then, that shit in middle school? Yeah. Oh my god. And then, yeah. Someone wanted you to not <laughs> not be all right. Yeah, I mean, I read a lot, I read a lot of weird books pretty early, but yeah. uh, but. And then we had just reread it, 
I just reread it in in college. So I try to read it like reread it once every <laughs> six or seven years. I think at this point, it's yeah. it's good. It, it's good to kind of knock you back into place. But talk about something that just waits till the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a, and that, that was sort of the idea, right? It's like this this song that's sort of about malaise and whatever um, the placelessness, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to have it end the same way the stranger ends, you know, that was like the formalistic approach to it was that this would end just like the stranger with the same words. All the week, um, my friend uh, Tut Beamer, I remember saying that you used to refer or you have referred to All the Week as Chris's best song. No, that would be Turnstiles. Um, he's, yeah. he's getting them confused. He's getting them confused. Yeah. There's, I mean, like, I think All the Week's a cool song. It's a really cool song. Yeah. It, is no turnstile. I would I would never say all the week is one is Chris's best song. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like it a lot. Um, it's an interesting one. This is it's got a lot of the um, sixteen hours uh, thing going Definitely. on where it's like it's like we're gonna do a lot in like just a couple seconds and then oh here it goes it's getting good bye we're done you know <laughs> you're living with. Chris at this time, right? Yes. Are you living in the Lawrence Arms? Um, yes. Where is that? Or where was that? Lawrence and Kenmore. Okay. Um, Kenmore. Where's that? That's like east of Broadway. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So you're pretty close to the lake. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Kenmore Corridor was a big drug trafficking zone mm-hmm. um, back in the day. We found that out after we moved in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, we weren't we weren't actually living at the Lawrence Arms anymore. We had moved just west to um Lawrence and Walcott mm-hmm. um after we moved out of the Lawrence Arms. Either way, it sounds like your apartment was a real shithole based on the songs that you and Chris are writing at this time. Yeah, definitely um our cohabitation was fraught with um uh, bacterial splendor, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, the there was we we had a <laughs> we had a thing in the in the sink. It was like some mold, and somebody was like, everybody would come over and they're like, "Jesus, that thing in the sink is so gross. What, what's its name?" And so we were finally like sick of it. And we're like. His name is Steve, and we like, and we we just had this mold in the sink that we called Steve, uh-huh. and it was like our homie, kind of. And then one day I came home from school, and Chris comes out and he's all exhausted. He's like, "Dude, I killed Steve." It's like I, I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> I killed Steve. <laughs> was Chris in school at the time too? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Old timers two by four. Who is this about? Uh, this is a. Like a kind of about my dad, I yeah. guess, but um, it's, it's pretty vitriolic, and uh, I feel like eh, you know, as I get older, I'm just like, eh, he's just an old man, it's fine, yeah, and, like, yeah. We kind of get along a lot better now than we did then, so I feel a little bit like, eh. but you know, it was the reality of the time. Well, I remember you, when you uh, first came over for Better Yet, you talked about how you have gotten closer with him, especially after your son was born. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but at the time, I mean, I uh, 
I don't know. We we've never like lived together, and so we've had like a pretty like weird and at times contentious relationship. And mm-hmm. I mean, I still wouldn't say we're like super close. I can't remember the last time I spoke to him, but you know, we get along great now. I mean, yeah, yeah. He's he's like a really great hang, but at the time. Not so much. Uh, <laughs> do you mind, do you mind uh, telling me about like what was going on then? I mean, I think that it's obvious that you're looking back now, and there's you're seeing the youth that's in this song. But yeah, um, either he called me up to attend my brother's high school graduation like the day before and my brother lives in Springfield, Missouri, which is like 10 hours away, eight uh-huh. hours away. And I was like, well, why didn't you tell me before? He's like, Oh, so you can't make it. Okay. I see. Yeah. I, f- I feel like that's what happened. Um, and it just like set me off and I was like, you don't, you don't even want me down. This is ridiculous. You know, like, uh, that I'm being made to feel guilty about something that's like, been, mm-hmm. like thrust upon me. Like, this when like you don't ever want me to go down there and like uh so it's it's uh it's his his son yeah okay yeah yeah so he wants you to to come down for this thing and and he hadn't reached out to you at all and so you're just like well there you can't make me feel like an asshole here well, if, but, if but, i'm not but, like coming to this was, thing that you didn't tell me about right there's there's no time uh-huh. you know i mean there, there, it was like the day before or something you know like legitimately, how are you supposed to get there? Right, right, and I, I feel like that's what it was, um, that like set me off to write the song. Mm-hmm. You know, like I get this phone call, and then it's just like, oh yeah, go do your important stuff with your band or whatever. And I was just like, like you know, I just like we never lived in the same house. Mm-hmm. You know, we were never particularly close. We like had a very rocky relationship when I was little. He, like, literally would, like, hold me into barber shop chairs while people would shave my head and stuff like that when he didn't like my Jesus. haircuts. And, yeah. Uh, so when I, like, got up and got older and got away from it and then, like, to be all of a sudden, like, infantilized mm-hmm. for my lack of ability to jump as high as he wanted me to on such short notice... For my brother, who I love and would love to see, and would have loved to have gone to his graduation, mm-hmm. you know, but I didn't. I didn't know about it, and then I was made to feel bad that I couldn't go. I, I don't. I, I'm pretty sure that's what it. Yeah, the whole thing was. I mean, seems like a lot of detail. If this is wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think that. I think that that scenario. I think is, if that's what your relationship is like it sounds like it's pretty fucking grinding when yeah. you're when you're a fucking 24 year old when you're old enough to know how to be an adult you you choose not to as we see on your records but <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You, you understand the dynamics of like yeah treat me like a fucking person in this situation here mm-hmm. guy yeah um yeah. not to like undercut the experience that goes into this song but this one's it's interesting to me because i think it um it's a good place to look at a lot of your songs on this record this is it's a kind of hard track to follow um you mentioned last week about how you didn't start writing choruses until yeah. uh, after this record so i guess 
um, what what's what's influencing the songs that you're writing without choruses or are you just not like thinking about like oh like how can i put a hook in here yeah that's that's doesn't that doesn't come up uh-huh. at all you know i just wanted this one to sound really dark and dirty uh-huh. and like there was never a point where i wanted to like bloom you know yeah um yeah. and i think it's just like art you know yeah like sure. like, like I, the, the way i would like and the way the song is being put together is like if i was painting something mm-hmm. you know and i mean that's like uh maybe a little presumptuous or pretentious or whatever but it, that's sort of how it felt to me was just like i wanted to make this like very dark smeared sound yeah you know and and then have it uh, reflective of the emotion of the song. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, totally. Uh, here comes the neighborhood 15 year old me. Love this one right away <laughs> because it, it, it doesn't have a chorus, but it's got two parts that are fucking huge hooks. <laughs> the song is so ridiculous. I mean, this has got to be one of the most hilarious songs that I've ever written. I mean, in terms of like, I mean, they, talk about a song that we were laughing out loud. I mean, like the... Yeah! So, but like... So, you know, at this time, everybody was like moving to Wicker Park and like all these people were moving from the suburbs or from, you know, other places in the Midwest into Wicker Park. And then they were like becoming like these sorts of like art bands right yeah and um who, who, let's name some names come well, on well this the thing is i'm yeah, having yeah. trouble like thinking about uh, thinking of any of the names of the bands because feels like like the the rainbow club crowd yes like the thrill jockey mm-hmm. people yeah. like that Rain, rainbow um empty bottle all that kind of stuff um these these places were like host to a bunch of shit that i was like had nothing to do with and no idea about what it was and then like when i'd hear it i'd be like this is your this isn't chicago music these people aren't even from chicago this has nothing to do with anything this is like a little disneyland for drunk teenagers Mm -hmm. and like this is these people like work on the cruise ship you know like this is like (laughs) fuck no right and so um the idea of this song was to write a song that was so unabashedly not that yeah <laughs> you know and like sonically mm-hmm. it was like you know like because everybody else was like there's a lot of serious haircuts and like you know sure. cool swagger and stuff like that and this was uh-huh. just this is just like it's kind of like two middle fingers in the air like drinking beer and farting in the back of the art exhibit or whatever it isn't it's this isn't like too far removed from exile and guyville which just like puts wicker park on the map and mm-hmm. also like i think high fidelity comes out in the year 2000 and that's set in wicker park it's set all around this this uh kind of culture well there, i mean it was a huge like cultural presence for a while you know i mean like wicker park's boom was a big deal i mean it's probably the the closest thing that the midwest has ever had to like red hook 
yeah, you know, or whatever. Definitely. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's not surprising that it was pervasive throughout things like punk rock and you know indie rock, and then even cinema, mm-hmm. like to me. But that was all not on my radar at all. I was just fuming about the fact that like somebody was like taking my city and like taking this like dumb pretentious music and calling it Chicago music and I'm and again you know I mean it's even in the lyrics but like you people aren't even from Chicago mm-hmm. like you you come to my town move into this like fucking Ukrainian neighborhood mm-hmm. you know <laughs> kick everybody out and then you call it Chicago and you play this dumb ass music and you call it Chicago music get fucked yeah for like every single aspect of it and <laughs> but i recognize now that that's a pretty short-sighted and shitty view i mean like gentrification obviously uh i'd like to point out that i worked at a specialty coffee shop <laughs> in wicker park for five years starting in 2012 so uh <laughs> those people really paved the way for me <laughs> yeah yeah but i mean i mean you know but I would get so many people that would older people who would come in and and just say like you don't know what this neighborhood was like twenty years ago and I'd be like I guess I don't I'm not from here it, I'm but, from the suburbs <laughs> but it used to be it used to be so fucked up I yeah. mean like just a little bit before this time like when like uh, Brian Peterson who ran the Fireside Bowl and Scott Anna who was the older brother of Pete Anna, who was in Slapstick, and Scott was also in a great band called Sweep the Leg Johnny, mm, um, mm-hmm. and uh, Skiba. They all lived down in Wicker Park, and I used to go right, visit yeah. them, and it was like bombed out shithole. I mean, like, and I, I am aware that we're talking about like a gentrified neighborhood. For me to talk about the before picture and call it a shithole sounds pretty um, problematic. But the fact is, you don't know what I'm talking about then. Because it was Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. dude smoking crack on the sidewalk, wild dogs running around, fucking no buildings, no businesses. I mean, it was crazy. There's a reason that it was so, like, feckin' for, you know, young people to come in and, like, build stuff there, uh because it was fucking i mean it was a ghost town absolutely you know yeah. and i mean you know obviously we could spend 20 years discussing the uh disgusting um aspects of gentrification versus the obvious um there's a there's a reason that people are relegated into these spots and there's a long trail of Cabrini Green and like I lived in Bloomington uh, Illinois for a number of years and there were so many poor people who just got shipped down to Bloomington Illinois and just been just left there to deal with it it's it's yeah it's cycles of of cities and and I mean this Wicker Park has definitely been like the seed for so much of the transformation that that Chicago is still going through and to look at the blue line trail and how many people are just like following it yeah up into the northwest yeah I mean, as more and more people have decided oh it's safe now 
because yeah. we got fucking specialty coffee shops. Yeah, but I mean, like, but that is the other side, man. Is it's safe now? Yeah, and like, <laughs> you right, know, right. Like, they, it's like the. It, I think there's like a willful um, disassociation on both sides. Right? Totally, like where totally. it's like it's like the people that move in are like, but now the neighborhood is safe, mm-hmm. and it's like, no, yeah, it is for you, <laughs> but like. For me, now I could get arrested here, and I grew up here. Yeah, you know, like yeah. so. It, it is. It is. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to. It's hard to fucking parse that shit. But again, there's probably one podcast just about gentrification of Wicker Park that's probably got 300 episodes. You know, so yep, we're and we're not, we're probably not gonna figure it out. We're on today. our way there, baby. <laughs> 300. You got to start making more records, my dude. I got one in the hopper right now. Uh, light breathing. Me and Martha Plimpton in a fancy elevator. Is this based on a true story? It is, in fact, based on a true story. Uh, Chris was going some. I wanted. I want to say is to visit one of our friends um, from our high school class who was staying like at her aunt's house or some shit like that. Um, and I'm probably getting these facts wrong, but the way I remember it is that. And uh, and yeah, he got on the elevator and. Martha Plimpton and her dog. Steph from the Goonies. Yeah. And uh, they rode the elevator. Somebody asked me this the other day on Twitter. I was like, is this, can you confirm or deny that this is a true story? And I said, yeah, well, it's a true story, but it's a story about two people taking an elevator in silence. Nothing happens at all. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not that hard to believe. You know, it's just like artfully rendered by Chris. But <laughs> really, it, it's not like... I love the artful <laughs> rendering of it. The fact that it's such a silly song. And then Chris just finds this way to uh, turn it into a bigger statement about self-consciousness, about getting in your own way from having an experience. Oh, for sure, for sure. But like... Uh, it really doesn't matter if it's a true story. No, no, that, that's what I'm saying. It's like uh-huh. it's like the, the part of this... The, the song is in Chris's head. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, whether or not he ever was on an elevator with Martha Plimpton is secondary to, like, the emotions that he kind of captures in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. But it just so happens that he was, in fact, on an elevator with Martha Plimpton. <laughs> Aside from The Goonies, uh, uh, a, a movie that she was in that's worth pointing out for our purposes here, 1988, 1988's Running on Empty. I was like, oh! Yes, yes, how yes. How cute! How cute! And then we follow... Martha Plimpton with Ghost Stories. This is the title track. It obviously translates very well from the name of a song to just the name of a of a record. Is yeah. that the reason that you chose it as the as the title of this record? I think so. Yeah. Um. It it just like it it sounded like a volume. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's like sort of what an album is. And... This one takes it for me for the Chris songs on this record. You you just feel all of the tools. He has just inside in his writing and you you see it and you just know how he's going to sharpen it as and it's worth noting here. This is kind of the first time that I thought about this. This is three years removed from greatest story ever told. Yeah. The crazy amount of growth that comes from the three of you as writers and the band itself is just unreal when you think about it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this one definitely is, it's like an open Swiss army knife, 
like <laughs> everything is out you mm-hmm. can't really do much with it and it's pretty hard to navigate <laughs> but uh ultimately there's a lot of tools there um and and like um we play this one and i always have a good time playing it still and it never ceases to amaze me how like just fucking goofy and weird it is like there's just so many weird parts and it's mm-hmm. like oh th- but you know it all i love the dynamics just how quickly it gets quiet into intimate and cold yeah he, yeah no this is this is a this is a really good one um this is probably the most complicated song on this record in terms of um just like the yeah musically dynamic dynamics yeah. yeah um i i it's funny to kind of just look at like you know the the second verse with the the ticking watch and the friend who eases his pain by killing time not letting it kill him and then to just think about like fireflies where he just takes you know those are good images mm-hmm. but he just goes into so many different layers of abstraction within a couple years where it's just like what is he even talking about at this point <laughs> right. you know um so funny story in maybe 2004 2005 there was a rumor at prairie ridge high school in crystal lake illinois that the alkaline trio was breaking up and their last show was going to be at the bottom lounge where they were appearing on a show that the Lawrence Arms was headlining with a advertised special secret guest. I went to that show. I saw Chris watching one of the opening bands. I introduced myself and I said, hey, do you think you could play ghost stories? And he's like, no, (laughs) we don't play that. (laughs) But um, secret guest was Dillinger 4, who I'd only heard of. And... Just life-changing yeah. experience. Awesome. Um, to not only see this man for the first time, but to watch Patty on uh, stage banter, and then watch your set and watch you on stage banter. I was just like, "Oh <laughs> my goodness, I'm witnessing something." Here. <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that is uh, he's great he's really great at what he does and um i i am i'm a big fan i that was like before we were really like homies with d4 that that kind of took a little while because we were like it's like these two midwestern bands and people were always like kind of like trying to force us to mate in captivity a lot you know yeah. and i think that there was like a little bit of like bristling there not really from us so much but i think those guys were like a little bit cooler than us and just like you know mm-hmm. these fucking dorks you know and, yeah and and uh I think it's funny to watch the development of of both of your bands, especially after O Calcutta's out and after Civil War is out, because the like punknews.org era, I think it's those two bands at the top. As... Yeah, I mean it and it, it really like and you know, now like those guys are like the best. Yeah. You know, um, I I mean, first of all, they've always been like the best band, but like they're like some of my favorite dudes to do shows with and hang out with and we always have such a good time but it was just like there was like a brief in the beginning where it was like everybody's like you guys are best friends right and it was like nah, i mean we'd like each other but mm-hmm. you know it's fun mm-hmm. it's cool but like yeah yeah 
I I think that like yeah you're it's it's funny you two being on fat at that time because I think that you're both kind of oddballs in there and I think that really it's it's what kind of carries over past the era of what was hot with yeah. fat wreck at that time mm-hmm. especially bringing it against me and um so we've got um that story about requesting a song to uh, the most requested Lawrence Arms song, at least in the crowds that I've been in. I've never been to a Lawrence Arms show without at least five people yelling, <laughs> 106 South. Yeah. Um, Neil on the vocals. Neil singing. Neil singing. Uh, direct reference to watching The Simpsons. Second yep. Simpsons reference on the record. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not even the second. Probably there's probably a few more in there that I'm not even thinking of. It's like it's it's one of those things that I definitely like go back to hearing this record early on and just the re- just the plain like watching Simpsons is somehow like an incredibly like crazy experience to just have a band talking about something that you do. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like oh like I wonder if they watch uh at six o'clock on Fox, like I do, <laughs> which we do. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, this one's this one's fun. It's it's pretty funny. Um, we never played it for a long time, and then we started <laughs> breaking it out. Kind of, I mean, this this is a prime example of us just being like, "Fuck it, mm-hmm. fuck fuck you if you don't like it." You know what I mean? Like, yeah, and. Um, and yeah, it's it's funny how like the song has become so like enduring and like popular with people, and it's just like kind of a goofy pop, pop song. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that it's uh, the Lawrence, fact that it's Neil has a lot Lawrence to do with Arms it. favorite but, yeah. son up there uh-huh. in the front. For yeah, a change, you know? totally. <laughs> um, do you know the story behind it at all? Is one of six South like is that a is that an address? Is it uh, a yeah, highway? I think it has to do with him owing his parents money oh okay that's about as much as i can remember that tracks about it but i think that's his parents address or his parents old address um did you do the sequencing on this record as well it's it's funny to have a stretch of two chris songs a neil song and then minute yeah i did this i did the sequencing on this for sure um and uh i think it's just like you know you have to that's got to be the way you sequence a record is it's mm-hmm. got it's got to be based on like the the flow of it you know like it yeah like a lot of times it works for us to go like sort of somewhat back and forth but that only works if there's the right number of songs and if the tonality is right you the know? vibe on the on the first half it's like you couldn't take anything from the back half and and put it in there especially just like for the purposes of like keeping the kind of vocal share consistent Mm -hmm, it just mm -hmm. doesn't it wouldn't make sense at all no i don't think so and uh yeah and and then i thought i thought that this song was one of the most like maudlin sort of like depressed songs on the record Mm -hmm. minute yeah and for it to come out of something had to tonally downshift from 106 South mm-hmm. which is like a party you know mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was that was the thinking there and um, yeah you know and 
I love Minute. Do you like this song? I do like yeah. it. I um, this was one of my maybe my favorite one when I did all the songs for mm-hmm. this record. This was this was up there in terms of like my favorite things that I did on the record. Um, it is called Minute because it's one minute long. Uh, <laughs> I love the way like when it starts picking up momentum, like in the in the music but also just in like my stomach feels rotten my shoes are all soaked and my socks are all cotton it's just like the way you're just like adding on it's yeah, yeah. it's got such a cool momentum the, well the one thing that i liked about this song when it was written is that like again this is like you're saying this is before we were like doing choruses and stuff like that but uh it feels like it has all the parts of a song mm-hmm. you know it doesn't feel like truncated like the way 16 hours does you know like where it's just like shoop you know like it, even though it does end like that yeah but it's like it's got an intro it kicks in with like a slow verse then there's like a bridge like kind of like an intense bridge and an outro you know mm-hmm. first song with no choruses i mean that's yeah <laughs> those are the parts that's missing is the choruses i guess well it's it's i think it's interesting to look at the way you have bands more recently bands like Joyce Manor is, is a perfect example of minute long songs. They don't repeat anything, but all the parts are there. Right. And it's, it felt like when they were doing it, it was like, yeah, of course. And everybody was like, Oh wow. And then you go back to this song and it's like, Oh, y- y'all were doing that at least one time. Yeah. 15 yeah. I years mean, earlier. Like, well, yeah, you know, it's just all part of the, like, experimentation or whatever. Um, and, like, trying to do, like, a pastiche of different shit for for us. I mean, George Joyce Manor is obviously a much more focused and uh, intentional mm-hmm. um, group of very talented people. And we're just a bunch of goofy kids trying to fuck around and get some free beer. Um, <laughs> so you, you, you say the goddamn train glides soft through the rain... And I sit here dizzily and wait. Um, is that a, is that a red line train? That would be a um, metro train. Um, that was when I was taking the train back and forth from Northwestern. There's a metro train I would take every day. Oh, yeah. But just like the glide, it's the same train, right? Because it's the same train every day as opposed to like taking the CTA, which I know this is like a pretty granular distinction to make but it's like every day it's like literally the same car same train picks up at the same time drops off at the same time Mm -hmm. and then glides off through the rain is just about how silent those trains are yeah you know and uh it's 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 funny because i think that like there's there's so much stasis in there mm -hmm. and even when you're down to like my new points like that that's a uh that's a tough spot to be in yeah yeah, I mean, you seem so like you're just ready to get out of. Is it school? Is it like? Yeah, I mean, like that. Well, it, I mean, really, it seems like I'm ready to get out of uh, public transportation. <laughs> when I think about it, uh, got a lot of a lot of beef with public transportation, the municipality in general. But, uh, yeah, I think I was ready to get out of school. I was ready to be done with just, like, the whole idea of anything approaching involuntary youth 
mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, and to live as a young or as old as I want to be on my own terms, you know, like, and, uh, I was really very fed up. Yeah, for sure. I probably still am. <laughs> so we got minute and then the quote unquote last song on the record, the last one. Yeah. Um, I love the guitar bit at the end, just that like slow sort of uh, arpeggiation that that Chris is doing. Do you do you know what like what what influenced that? Because that's another thing that's on this record that like you don't really do. Um, I can see like sort of pieces that follow through, but like it's a very like emo part. Uh, you know, like I think that there is like. There are so many other places where something like that does kind of happen. I mean, like the place that I obviously can think about it is it's like totally revisited in the song Metropole. Yeah, if, sure. You know, just ding, 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 mm-hmm. ding, ding. But it's like very, very much more ambient in this, which is like sort of, you know, um, it's that late 90s um, influence just like creeping in. I mean, like you, there's a lot of very uh what how am i how am i gonna say this the right way because i don't want to call these bands like emo bands but... oh you, you talking about like braid and and well, cap and jazz well, and well, joan of arc but, no i'm not even talking about specific bands uh-huh. i'm talking about a general like uh zeitgeist that involved like a heaviness with navel gazing at the same time sure bands like hum just like oh, and yeah. just like just you know, like I feel like I feel like every band that we saw, every band that we would play with, there would be like these like huge like sort of like sonic soundscapes or whatever fucking dorky shit you want to say. Mm-hmm. But I think this was like sort of our take on it in terms of like sort of like taking it to, in a cool direction. Yeah, uh, you know, while well, at the same time uh, being a product of that time and like you know. Yeah, like, totally. We're, maybe in hindsight, I could be like, "Oh, you know, like I see like some some ba- like Appleseed cast or something have this like big uh-huh. heavy ass um, ambient breakdown and ha 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 or something." I mean, I don't even know anything about that band. I don't know if that's the kind of thing they are. Yeah, I don't know yeah, if they're cool accurate. Yeah, or yeah, lame. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I'm not trying to talk shit, but uh-huh. like, um, but I mean, like all of those bands are playing at the fireside bowl. Right. And we're seeing them all. And so like, it's, it's tempting for me now to be like, Oh, we thought that was dorky. We were going to do a cool version. And I think there's probably something there's truth to that, Mm -hmm. but there's also, uh, the larger truth, which is that, um, we were part of that time as well. And so like, as much as like, we'd be like, okay, we'll make a better version of everything. It's still like a version of something that we, Mm-hmm. Thinks cool. I mean, you you look at like a record like Bivouac, yeah, and there's there's tons of arts like that. Oh I, yeah. I, I hope I'm not like I'm not like purposefully uh, bringing up Jawbreaker over and over again. In no, a, I mean yeah. Jawbreaker. Jawbreaker was a band that was uh, very influential to us, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's funny because I think Jawbreaker was not as influential to us as a lot of people think. Mm-hmm. But it would be completely disingenuous to say that they weren't. I mean, it's the first concert I ever saw was Jawbreaker. Yeah. You know, yeah. like ever of anything. Mm-hmm. Not like the first cool show. Mm-hmm. Like I was 
I love that video. Yeah. Jawbreaker <laughs> Reckless Records. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, Jawbreaker is a band that does stuff like this a lot. This also marks one of the first of my, like, actually cool bass lines mm-hmm. um, in, in this song at the end there. Definitely. Um, I. It was the first time I wrote something. Well... It was. It was the first time I wrote something because Ace of Phelps is Dead was the last song written for the record. Mm-hmm. And that, I don't know. I like, <laughs> we've already we've already heard you rip into me for it being such a funk jam. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but this one is, and actually I return to this like same exact figure so much. The do 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 I mean, I, I return to that. Mm-hmm. Same basic form. Uh, the great thing about playing bass, nobody's <laughs> going to call you out for that. <laughs> um, speaking of products of the time, a pop punk record from the early 2000s with a good old fashioned secret track. Oh, yeah, man. Three of them. That's right. Oh, blessed. Um, old Mexico Way comes first. We've got some extra parts on here. Is Chris playing the lead on this song? Uh huh. Yeah. And yeah. who's on harmonica? That's me on harmonica. And um, and then Mike Giampa and Neil singing backing vocals. Mm-hmm. I mean, with Chris and I as well. I think this song turned out a lot better than we ever expected. This is great song. <laughs> or like, yeah, it's a great recording too. Well, here's the thing. This is the song that Giampa started with. <laughs> like when he did the first uh-huh. mix, he based everything off this. So <laughs> this song <laughs> That's what I mean when I say it turned out a lot better than we wanted it to. Cause like it was supposed to just be like a hidden track. Like I wrote the song in my room and mm-hmm. I was like, let's just throw this out there, it'll be fun. You know, and and then he's like, Yeah, right, I'm gonna my, for the first track I'm gonna mix is gonna be Mexico Way, that Mexico Way song. So like everything is basically mixed to the template of this, which uh-huh. could explain why this song sounds so much better than the rest of the record, because <laughs> it's like stylistically a completely other band. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that's so funny. But uh, but yeah, um, I had I had a lot of these songs. I still do. Like I, I still like. I mean, do you na- just like r- just write like these types of songs just for fun? Yeah, I mean, back then I wrote them for fun. I just kind of kept them on the on the shelf or whatever now uh-huh. i have the wandering birds right right you know but it's the same exact i mean that's a wandering bird song essentially totally. right you know yeah, like yeah em- embryonic uh it's it's not that's a lawrence arm song but like mm-hmm. you, you know what i mean like uh but could, it's like you're you're doing the outlaw country character you know down yeah. to like shooting someone to watch him die sure sure um yeah. it's not coming from the same internal place that all of these no. songs are but what a person it's coming from hey thanks um it's it's just so funny to think too about like you start doing choruses after after uh this record with the lawrence arms and here's one where it's just like this is structurally like yeah. such a good song yeah this is well this like the, these country songs i had this one i had another one like i i had a whole bunch of them and some of them have aged pretty poorly um and some of them are still pretty cool but like i had one called early times uh, oh hell yeah and that's a that's a good good thing to feel terrible about drinking <laughs> it's a good that's a good freezer whiskey yeah yeah <laughs> and then um another one um 
well let's just stick with this one in early right, times right. for now uh-huh. but uh but, but like but they were all like real classic verse chorus bridge mm-hmm. you know i mean there's another one actually coming up here in a little bit there we go you know um so faintly falling ashes uh referred to on cocktails and dreams as purple haze when did it become faintly falling ashes or well cocktails and dreams uh i i we just thought it would be funny to call it purple okay, haze. yeah like it just because mm-hmm. we, were, we were actually i think if i recall correctly chris and i were sitting around talking about how there's no song that's like fucking just as soon as you hear it as irritating as purple haze like we just like when it starts it's just like uh-huh. it's the ultimate song that's like shorthand for like a bunch of like dads walking yeah. into a uh-huh. room that are cool dads mm-hmm. you know what i mean like like if, if you're if, you, if there's a movie and it's like michael keaton and jim belushi are about to walk into the room together <laughs> They're playing Purple Haze to show that they're the two baddest dads in the whole fucking uh, resort or whatever. And uh, Jim Belushi. <laughs> and I fucking, I love Faintly Falling Ashes. Um, I love this acoustic version yeah, of it me as too. well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember what the reasoning behind calling this song Purple Haze after having that conversation is. Because it seems like the indication would be like, Oh, because this song's irritating as shit, and, but that's obviously not the case. I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't feel that way at all. And uh, although I do know that Chris, I think, finds this song to be kind of irritating. Yeah. Um, like th- this is one that, like, every year at War on Christmas, I'm like, mm-hmm. we have to play the song that's about Christmas. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. And, I mean, yeah, I think that there's like no way for a Christmas song to not become a little irritating, right? Yeah. Well, I, I think the Christmas songs really suck bad. Mm -hmm. And I don't think this song sucks. That's like sort of like one of the highest compliments I could give any song of anybody. I mean, I can only think of one Christmas song that I like more than that. It's fairy tale of New York. I was going to say, but it's got to be. And that song is like the fact that it's the bells are ringing out on Christmas day. is just like, it's a small detail for a song. That's more about fucking, the United States of America, baby. I mean, well, I think it's a song about two people falling back in love in a drunk tank from Christmas Eve to Christmas Day, and they come out, and the bells are ringing, and the choir is singing, and they're like, and she's like ready to throw it all away because she got drunk and threw it into the drunk tank with fucking homeboy, mm-hmm. and then she's, and then he, like, has that line that's so beautiful, where he's like. I kept your dreams with me, you know, and like I, yeah. I, I wrapped yeah. them around me, and then you could tell that they're back in love then. Mm-hmm. And then the the fucking chorus is singing, and it's Christmas. I disagree. Total Christmas song. Damn, give me goosebumps <laughs> just thinking about Shane and Kirsty McCall. What a fucking what a fucking name. Uh, you know, Kirsty McCall got hit by a boat and died. Did you know that? I thought she had cancer. No, she got like she got hit by a boat saving her kid from getting hit by a boat in like the late 90s. Very very sad. Uh sorry. <laughs> I saw I saw it's a, it's a wild piece of trivia. I saw the I saw the 
first Pogues show when they reunited with Shane. Oh yeah. And at the end they played Fairy Tale in New York was the last song they played and at the very end they it was um Brixton Academy, which is mm-hmm. a big place. Wow. And um it turned off all the lights. Yeah, what were you doing what were you doing there? Going to see the Pogues. Oh, fucking right. <laughs> and uh and it was just like one cone of light. And oh, but it was uh Christy's sister. Oh wow! Came out and sang it. She's got uh-huh. like a beautiful voice, very yeah, yeah. comparable. And then there was just one cone of light, and her and Shane slow dancing, and they dropped like fake snow oh. from the from the ceiling, like in the whole place. It was cool. That's so cool. Yeah. She's got some great records. A really good cover of uh, uh, "A New England" by Billy Bragg. Um, in cocktails, it notes that that this one was recorded at home on shitty recording devices. Uh, are those the same devices that you and Chris would share songs with mm-hmm. each other? Do you yeah. remember what they were? Uh, were they... Chris, Chris had a Chris had some kind of four track. Um, I believe, um, like a like a analog four track, maybe like yeah. a Tascam. Yeah, maybe. Um, and I, I can't remember his as well. I remember it was blue. Um, I had a Roland VS-880, which was a, a thing that was bought for me during the largesse of uh, record label uh, signing frenzy of all sorts of bands mm-hmm. from like anything remotely close to punk rock or ska or anything like that. Uh-huh. And the dude bought it for me to try to sign the Broadways. Oh, wow. And I took it and I was like, Thanks anyway. <laughs> so, so we, you would just pass cassettes back and forth to each other? Yeah. Um it's just cool to think about. Like it's it's obviously very different now. Yeah, I mean he like he, we'd go into each other's rooms and hit play on our devices or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then we'd make tapes or CDs, you know. I can't remember how I used to get things off of that, but um and then heaven help me uh another like these just coming out like 15 minutes like what why the fuck not they all do every song i write is written i guess i knew that yeah yeah um so i mean i didn't take any less time writing this than i do writing anything else Uh uh-huh i'm actually i like this song a lot i think that the i do too storytelling aspect of it is it really like it's a universe building song this Mm -hmm. one um like i kind of see like this entire little town and all these people and all these sort of characters. Um, and it's just fun. I mean, that's like something that I like. I'm not, I don't get to dabble in it as much as probably I'd be smart to, but, um, yeah, you could make a living off of something like this, but no, I mean, just like, even just like the, even just the universe surrounding it, uh, surrounding the song, not not just totally. the, the melody and stuff like that. I just, I sort of, I sort of like it, and I like the. Yeah, you got like Mississippi Sun in the fucking <laughs> bar room, and and it's it it follows. It really does. Yeah, and it, it, like, uh, yeah. I mean, I just, I kind of like, I kind of like that, like, trash life storytelling. Exploration mm-hmm. thing, you know, mm-hmm. it's fun. Yeah. It's fun yeah. to me. You're 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 a, a child of Bukowski, yeah, in well, that way. I'm more of an adult of Bukowski. He, he, I, I read too stupid of books when I was a kid. <laughs> like when everybody else was reading Bukowski, I was like, oh, but if you read Salman Rushdie, yeah. <laughs> you know, then I just went back and read Bukowski <laughs> later. Um, 
so this we stop sorry i'm scratching the table yeah they know (laughs) um so this comes out in may what's the reaction to it do we do we have any shows uh booked by the time this record's coming out well i can't recall i remember what i do know is that we had recorded this record before we played a show Mm -hmm. but we played shows before this record came out you know and when this record came out i have no memory of anybody giving a shit whatsoever about this record um i remember we toured and like these songs were part of the arsenal for a lot longer than like the guided tour songs were mm-hmm. um so we were still playing like turnstiles and chicago's burning and ghost stories minutes maybe mm-hmm. for like a long time you know but uh no, there was no, there was no flash in my memory of this record coming out at all. I can't remember. Is this maybe, maybe the record release show was the one where we had, we all wore Catwoman masks and we played in front of a gigantic American flag uh, banner uh, from The Postman, the Kevin Costner movie. <laughs> we put that up as like it was our banner. <laughs> I think that might be only only <laughs> thing I had to go on with the postman is Lisa Simpson and the uh, and the department store. Oh, I heard this sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Uh, I've not seen the postman, but we we somehow got it from somebody who gave it to us because of the Kevin Costner's casino song on uh-huh. Guided Tour. But it was what a big a banner, and we were just like. You know, bands have like banners. Wouldn't it be fucking funny if we just put this up and it has nothing to do with us at all? <laughs> but I mean, this is some. Uh, th- th- these are the the real building blocks that built the Lawrence Arms. <laughs> shit like this, you know, <laughs> like like this would be really stupid. Let's do it, you know. Well, within a couple of months, the Shady View terrorist split, and I think that's kind of that really marks the beginning of a lot of forward-moving. Yeah, momentum. yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely, you know, that sort of entire thing that sort of rounded up on cocktails and dreams. That entire era mm-hmm. um, was the mark of like us finding our footing as a band and like becoming a lot more both a lot more serious and a lot more playful you know like Mm -hmm. there's still like sort of a push pull uh dichotomy on this record i think where there was a lot of like humorless elements to it and then it was made up for by overt humor yeah you know definitely and and, uh i think we had to learn how to not be quite so humorless mm-hmm. which if uh if there's any young aspiring musicians out there um if there's one piece of advice i could ever give is uh you gotta have a sense of humor or else your band totally sucks um it doesn't mean you have to be funny you know there's plenty of things out there that have a sense of humor that aren't funny um propaganda is a great example of a band that like maintains a sense of humor but isn't a funny band at mm-hmm. all. I mean, even though they do have some funny songs. But yeah, but they're 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 deadly serious. Yeah, and but but there's like a sense of humor that's pervasive through their whole thing. Um, even a band like Naked Raygun, who like is 
the world has turned in a different direction. And so I wouldn't, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think if you're a kid now listening to Naked Ray Gun, it would just sound bizarre. You'd be like, what? Is this even punk? I don't know what this is. But mm-hmm. like, they they were like doing stuff that was so weird and so avant-garde and groundbreaking. But there was still always a sense of humor in there. And like, so anyway. Fucking, even, even Camus got a sense of humor i think that that shit applies to all our oh, like oh, oh, no. gotta laugh at this stuff it it, it, it applies to everything and, and again it doesn't have to be funny there doesn't have to be like jokes involved but if, a sense of humor is i mean there's you know humor and human come from the same latin root right and so you can't have uh fucking anything that's humanizing or human at all in any sort of art if it doesn't have a sense of humor that's what that's like literally the imbuement of humanity right like so fucking on that soapbox i love it his name is brennan kelly my name is tim crisp and we would like to thank all of you out there for joining us this week on road to the skeleton coast invite you all to rate and subscribe tell a friend about it and let us know what you think we've got a lot more of these to do so hit us up he's at bad sandwich i'm at better yet pod brendan yeah what are we gonna talk about next week so i would like to go um maybe take a little bit of a weird tack and let's do a can we do a broadway's record next week what yeah we'll do a broadway's record we'll we'll do broken star um well we, we, this is a Lawrence Arms podcast. It's it's yeah, and uh, I I'm totally in that band. So I feel like I, I, it, it's my uh, it's it's in, within my power to drive the, uh, the the podcast in in that direction. Um. Okay. Well, we uh, didn't. Yep. Didn't exactly plan on that one, but uh, I guess we'll try to make it work. Okay, I think it's going to be great. Come back next I mean, it'll week. Be, it'll, be, it'll be better than the record, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, brothers. Thanks. Okay.